Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time 167 with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Three things of note to tick off 167. What is that? That's what VVS Lakshman made at Sydney in 2000, an innings you have described as possibly your favourite you've ever seen. Adam, another thing is that this is a monster revisit special. We have been putting this off for far too long and we have a lot of work to do. And it's still not entirely all of them because I, I know there are a couple that I've missed in the lead up as well. And thirdly, you are a fancy boy and you are back from Paris. I am. Hello. Yeah, 167 was the, the breakout Lakshman innings. So my, my fave's the one 78 in 2004, but the one in early 2000 uh, was where he, um, when they were chasing a million and they still lost by about that many, but he carried his bat or near enough to carry his bat. Uh, and that was the the sign that this guy was mm. pretty special, as they, you know, you know, VVS, very, very special. Yeah, well, uh, well, you get it? A good you get it? It's a really good one. Uh, I think um, he would have been batting uh, three, would not he? Yeah. Um, in that, uh, wouldn't have opened. Yeah, although I, can't, I genuinely can't remember. They might have promoted it. M- no, that's when test. MSK Prasad was opening, wasn't it? It was mm. definitely MSK Prasad opened in that final test. I've just got a feeling he might have opened in the second innings. Anyway, either way, you're right. That was a significant moment in that Guns career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have just returned from Paris, so you're right on that front too. We, um, I kind of. Uh, uh, hinted to this last week with um, I, I did a surprise 40th for H mm-hmm. on Friday night, which was a, a whole thing, which was lovely. Uh, we had about 50 odd friends rock up and everyone kept the secret and pretty much everyone who was meant to be there was there. Those who weren't, I'll simply um, uh, blacklist from the rest of my life. Those who <laughs> RSVP didn't show up. I know who you are. And that's just um, <laughs> And those who uh, who didn't show up for H's birthday, despite saying they would, that's that's fine. That's your mm-hmm. choice. You just won't have anything to do with me ever again. Yep. Uh, but uh, yeah, they, you make but no, it, was, it was lovely. You do. You make your decisions. But no, it, it was it was a fabulous night there in um uh, in a bar in Finsbury Park. And when she turned the corner and saw everybody, she was suitably surprised. And that's that's all you want, mm-hmm. uh, really. And um, and it was nice, a nice and civilized night as well. In that we were in bed by, I don't know half past 12 or one o'clock or something like that for we had to get the Euro star first thing the next morning. Mm-hmm. And the second part of the surprise was that her parents were also on that Euro star as well. So we all went to Paris together, which was nice, included Disneyland, Euro Disney stuff mm-hmm. with the kids and, and lots of other nice stuff besides took it to a posh Michelin star restaurant as you do when you're in that part of the world. I know right. Jeff that you were sledging French food last week, but we did have a, a croque madame, a croque monsieur <laughs> with, a, with an egg on top. Uh, uh, why wouldn't we? Had a, a, a lunch on their actual birthday itself. We cruised down the Seine, which was a, a nice thing to do with the kids mm-hmm. and ate North African food, ate Vietnamese food when uh, her parents kindly babysat the kids uh, after hours. So, oh, so that's why you brought um, them. Yeah. Well, it wasn't why I brought them, but it did turn out to be. Given Rach has been, you know, uh, on mat leave for two of the last three and a bit years and, you know, the challenges that, that go hand in hand with that for getting out and about with breastfeeding and so on, it is rare for us to um, uh, get out just as the two of us. So it did it did play out beautifully. Uh, and as I mentioned on the England-India daily, I'm not sure when we're publishing this, probably in about 
four days after we're actually talking right now. Um, I did visit the um, accidentally the Westfield in Paris yesterday, which uh, which crosses over with our friends over there, even though they're not responsible for story time per se. That's right. supersuper.com.au. More about them later. Yes, it was um, a, a completely full weekend. I didn't know uh, there was I'm one in Paris. To be home. So, so when they say yeah. biggest Christmas tree in Europe, what they're really doing is sticking the middle finger up at Paris and being like, lift your game, <laughs> Westfield, Paris. How big's your Christmas tree? Not very big. Yeah, I think um, I think this is the Westfield that got looted during the last round of Paris mm. riots. So, but still, that's lovely, authentic. Sure. Didn't spend much time there. That's what makes yeah. it authentic. It's more real. Yeah, they love it. Love yeah. a bit of looting and rioting in Paris when um, the economic conditions dictate. But yeah, story time one six seven revisit special. The last one of these we did, Jeff, was uh, during the county championship. Just remembering where I was. I was at the Oval. It was during mm. a county championship round. So that must be September, at least October. September. So that's about right. We tend to do two or three of these per year. We've worked out a nice rhythm where we do new numbers now as a matter of course rather than trying to jam everything together. Mm-hmm. Short show's a good show and all the rest. They're seldom short shows, but shorter show mm-hmm. than what they used to be. Uh, and then we come back and clean up the rest in these job lots. So that's what we'll do today. That is what we'll do today. Although I will say I was astonished when Barrett and I did our live show and I turned off the recorder and it said 47 minutes. The live <laughs> gig in Adelaide. I don't know how that happened. Um, you know, it felt longer because we had the, the terror of a live audience, but it worked. Anyway, we don't have a lot of time today. Oh, well, we do have a lot of time. We have a lot of time that we're going we to do. fill, but that means we need to be efficient. So I'm going to stop talking about yes, how much yes. time there is left and I'm going to get on with the job at hand via the medium of... Nerd Pledge! Nerd Pledge, Nerd Pledge, the nice game that we play with the good people of the internet who fund this program by sending in financial contributions and those dollar amounts or pound amounts or check kroner amounts or whatever they might be, that number relates to cricket. We have to figure out what it means. And in all of these instances, we did not figure out what it meant on at least the first and sometimes Mm. the second or third attempt. Claire, Danny, Daniel, this one's been sitting on the shelf for a while, £7.71, because... Claire asked if we could hold the revisit until the report into historical racism at Essex Cricket Club came out, which it has in the, well, not in the, not super recently, but a few weeks ago. And thus, thus, as Claire Message said, uh, looks like my revisit might come up soon. Odd timing because I'm in the throes of preparation for my mum Jane's funeral and to a great extent I put in the pledge because of her distress at hearing that players were so badly treated during a time when she put a lot of energy into supporting Essex. My pledge was a career number for one of the whistleblowers. So our thoughts with you at the moment, Claire, and Mm. um, hope that you're holding up as best you can in the circumstances. Yeah, so well, yeah, I share that um, sentiment. It was lovely to exchange a couple of emails with uh, with Claire this week. So yeah, in the past we we'd spoken about Mark Elaine, we'd spoken about John Lewis, we'd spoken about Sid Lawrence a long time ago. I think this has been on the on the statute books for a while. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this this sharpened it up um, uh, when the well, the report to uh, racism at Essex. We should have discussed it on our weekly show in December. It was released in early December, but it was one of those that just slipped through the cracks because we were both in Australia and in the middle of covering a series and it's impossible to stay on top of everything. So I actually didn't realise that this report had been handed down in relation to the three whistleblowers at Essex. Morris Chambers was the original, as I understand it, the original former Essex player to put his head well, above the parapet, really, in 2021 when it was all happening around Azeem Rafiq. We've got fond memories of Maurice Jeff at North Ants in 2015. It's sort of like a, 
um, that for, I don't know why, but that weekend, it's a bit like that 1930 test match at Sabina Park that we talk about seemingly every third show. Yep. It's a significant part of our lives. It's, um, it's like that episode of Quantum Leap, which there's one particular date they come back to in the final episode and they can't account for why they keep getting to this particular time. So they fudge it in the script and say, oh, it must just be the universe, you know, directing them to that place. And and so it proves for you and I, I think, to a point, you know, Northampton on my birthday in 2015 where mm. so much happened and has had such an influence on our career. But Morris Chambers was, was part of that. I think he took... Was it three late wickets on day one to lead the Australians about three for 30 overnight, which mm-hmm. gave North Hans a chance? But, yeah, he, he played most of his cricket earlier in his career um, down at Chelmsford at Essex. Yeah, it was – I remember him taking the new ball and charging in and it was whether he could – he had a second spell later on and whether he could generate the pace. But he was you know, he was a tall bowler and he got bounce. And, and this, mm. is, this is the game, if you've not heard of it before, where Australia nearly lost – to North Ant in the space of two days by an innings. At one point, it looked like that would be the case until Pat Cummins made 86 not out, I reckon, batting right mm. down the order in the first innings. They could have been turned over with another 50-odd innings to go on, on day two and forced to follow on. But, um, yeah, the, the, the scorecard makes some pretty interesting reading. So this independent report was commissioned in 2021 when it was all kicking off, as I mentioned before. It looked at Essex between the mid-90s and 2013. That was the the, the scope, the terms of reference. And Catherine Newton, uh, who's a senior counsel, was responsible for authoring the report and uh, undertaking the investigation. So it found that um, a minority of players were, were too scared to speak up. So players of a minority background, I should say, were too scared, her quote, to speak up. And for Maurice, I mean, dreadful business, really, banana taunts and awful stuff that um, featured in the news reporting of the report itself. Some of this was included on team buses on the way to games and so on, which almost makes it bad enough as it is, but it's when, when it's in a team environment where everyone can hear it and no one from management is stopping it, it mm. feels like it makes it that much worse. Then Zoab Sharif, who played between 2000 and 2004, he was known as the bomber after 2001, the September 2001 um, terrorist attacks. Uh, and Jade Ahmed, who played between 2003 and 2009 at Essex, he was the first British-born player of Bangladeshi heritage. He was called a terrorist as well and a curry muncher was the term used in the report. Other dreadful racial slurs, including um, the term Egan, uh, so for egg and spoon, the rhyming slang, um, you can do the maths on that. The N word was used to talk of their penises. I mean, really grim stuff. I, I wasn't going to mention all of this, but I thought it's actually worth being uncomfortable and saying all of that, given it wasn't a report. There were unreserved apologies issued by the club to the three whistleblowers by the new chair. The old chair in 2017, I think it was, had said, um, something uh, of, of a, uh, a racist nature behind closed doors, which got out and the club was already copying a fine for that. So this just goes on and there's layer after layer. Jahed spoke to the Cricketer magazine when the report came out. He said, the report shows we weren't lying and we weren't crazy on a personal level. I very much appreciate the apology the club have made to me. For them to acknowledge what we went through is an important step. More importantly, by accepting what the culture of the club was like, they can ensure it never happens again. The outcome of this report should make it easier for the next generation of players to come through. And coming back to 
Claire's number, 771. Uh, that's for Zoeb. Um, that's how many runs he made in first-class cricket at an average of 41 in 15 matches with two centuries and a best score of 140 not out, 15 wickets as well as a part-time bowler. Now, there was no finding in the report saying that the players were um, had their careers shortened at Essex because of their race, but it does stand out in, in Zoeb's case that his career was a relatively short one despite having fairly productive returns and the whole thing's just a another sorry reminder of how far the game has to come to get its shit together. I know this is historical stuff from the mid-90s to 2013. I know the world's changed a lot for the better in the last 10 years, but this process of reconciliation, if you like, at Essex has been an important one and um, I'm glad we've had the chance to to talk about it today, albeit in a slightly different context. Yeah, it does stand out that a player has a, a four-year career with, you know, making two hundreds in their first 15 games. That's the sort of thing that will get you a, a contract extension most times as a, a, you know, at most county clubs. So, yeah, I, I'm always I'm always pretty sceptical of the, um, you know, ensuring this will never happen again sort of line. I, that that's, History doesn't bear that out, but I, I think it's about having instances like these as as spurs to vigilance and as something that you can go back to to cite when action needs to be taken the next time around because there will always be a next time around it's just whether we can act more swiftly and more decisively when it when those things do start to come up yeah i think that language can sometimes be sloppy and you, you can say things that you with the benefit of hindsight reflect on and go i wish i didn't say that and Partly that's a function of our upbringings and the culture we live in and, and so on. But it's one thing to to say it and then reflect upon it. It's another thing to say things and then never have the ability to mm. reflect. And I think that's that's what this does. It means that you can go back and go, yeah, fuck, I shouldn't have said that. That's a bad thing to have said, even if it was 10 years ago. Yeah. And that makes sure that you won't do it in the future. I think, Jeff, you've spoken and written nicely about this in the past around you know, what is it to be a racist? Well, it's to commit fewer racist acts, mm. um, fundamentally. It's just like do fewer racist things, Yeah, um, ideally none to begin with. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, anyway, I, I don't profess to be perfect or, or, or an authority on these matters, but from what I've learnt as a, a privileged, privileged by virtue of being a, a white bloke um, person in the community, I know that we've all got to commit to being better and, and um, accounting for when we're not as good as we should be. So that's the number for Claire, um, and it has had its moment at last. Uh, Jonathan Potton is next on our list with 243. I'm going to guess this came in pounds to begin with. It has a follow-up clue. Yeah, so the first time around, Jeff, we spoke about where New Zealand made this score twice in one match, and, and you went into how rare that was for a mm-hmm. side to make the same score twice. The clue was sent on the 12th of July, Jonathan says, so it's still correct at the time of writing. My nerd pledge relates to a family member who I never met because of the generation separating us. Mark Wood just got his 12th of these, only 243 to go. And he wants the story of this cricketer. I think I know who this is. I'm looking forward to hearing the answer. (laughs) Um, Okay. So this was some arithmetic uh, was able to sort this one out. And because this is a revisit show, I've tried to keep my answers relatively succinct, but this one couldn't be. <laughs> Thus, here we go. What does Mark Wood have 12 of? He has 12 five-wicket innings across his entire first-class cricket career, four of them in test matches. They're career numbers that reflect the sort of the modern player where 
they play test cricket and not much outside it, and also just how much he's been injured over the years. So 72 first-class mm. games, 31 of them tests, so not not that far off half of his first-class matches wow. have been tests, and he's 34 years old and has managed 72 games, you know, where a, a player of the era we're about to talk about could probably have played 72 games in two seasons. So <laughs> he's got 12 fivers. And that means the number is 243, and if we add 12 to 243, we get 255. And did anybody take 255 five-wicket hauls? Absolutely, they did. Jack Hearn, who was born in 1867 and played his first-class cricket between 1888 and 1923, so a span of 35 years of first-class cricket for Jack, although his career pretty much finished with the war. He played a couple of slightly more silly games after the war that were deemed first class because whatever anything could be at that point in time but his his real cricket was up to 1914 so in terms of all-time first class wicket takers Wilfred Rhodes 4,204 leads the lot Titch Freeman who we talk about every week these days 3,776 Charlie Parker not the saxophonist 3,278 and Jack Hearn, our subject for today, 3,061. They're the only players to top 3,000 first-class wickets in a career and uh, they will absolutely be that forever. James Anderson, (laughs) 1,104 for reference and he's been playing for, what, 25 years? And even if you look at sort of vaguely modern players, you know, Imran Khan took 1,200 wickets, Warren and Morley took 1300 and something. Courtney Walsh. I'm surprised Warren got to 1300. Just on that, like Warren, yeah, so 708 test wickets. Because Warren was thrust into the Australian side so young and Mm. and didn't really play much Sheffield Shield. But they played a lot of tour games in those days. So he probably took a bunch there. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. So this is being, this is being boosted by the tour games Mm. that he played, especially in England. Yep. um, Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that Warren had. You know, six hundred odd other first class wickets that weren't taken for Australia, even in that yeah. era, a generation or two ago. Yeah, he did. He rarely played shield. I remember it being an event when he was available for a shield match, and mm. um, you know, I, I would go totally. and watch him play for the Vicks because he was around. But I suppose it was that, even more of an event when he would play for St Kilda. Remember, yeah. he would um, you'd, you'd have the shame sort of the annual Shane Warne game in district cricket for St Kilda, typically in the first round or mm. two. You know, late September, early October. Remember he made 100 batting at four once, batting for the Saints. That might have been sort of 1998 or something like that when Warren's batting was still, well, I was going to say still of a certain standard. He made his maiden first-class 100 in 2005 up the road from me here at Southgate uh, and made another one that season too, I'm pretty sure. So his batting did um, have better. a spike towards the end. But, yeah, but, but there was a time, hmm. there was a time uh, in the late 90s when Warren's batting was pretty good. Uh, and yeah, made that great hundred. And yeah, as you say, whenever he played for Victoria, be it in um, in fifty over cricket or Shield cricket, it 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 um, it was a news story. Mm. It was like, oh right, Shane Warne's playing. Must get down and watch. Well, um, he, yeah. So I suppose there's a there's a reason why he ended up with that number. Courtney Walsh was the other one I was going to mention in, in terms of players who played this millennium. Um, he got past eighteen hundred wickets, and I'm I'm pretty sure that's. Uh, that, that nobody else who played sort of as as recently um, got anywhere near that. So old Jack Hearn, as he came to be known, um, wasn't always old. He was young once. He played 639 first-class matches. Only 12 of them were tests. It was the 1890s, so there wasn't that much test cricket to play. But the, the pictures of him show a pretty dashing-looking young fella. He's got one of those little neat moustaches and a, a little jaunty cap and a little tie, you know, like a, a sort of nice boy in a sailor suit who's about to... to go off and, I don't know, serve cucumber sandwiches to somebody. There's a team photo 
on the internet as well with um, Johnny Briggs looking sort of half pissed, like slumped up against a chair. And Nutty Martin is in that team, a, a player we've we've talked about. So Jack Hearn was was a quick-ish bowler, sort of quick for the time. He swung the ball; he could swing it away, which nobody really did. Or like swing wasn't really part of the armory at that point. Um, he also bowled the traditional eighteen hundreds cutters that that cut in, you know, the off-break action, they would always refer to it as, which is what pretty much every fast, fastish bowler did at the time. And he apparently he's described as having a long run-up with a graceful action, which I guess just means he didn't bowl left-arm slows like everybody else in, in the 1890s. But So he's 20 years old and he's coaching at a school in Buckinghamshire when he gets seen bowling by Alexander Webb, who's the Middlesex captain for years and years and, and one test wonder. And that gets him a call up for Middlesex against a touring Australian side where he gets run out for a duck, gets bowled by JJ Ferris for another duck to complete his pair and Middlesex only bowl once. He does take two wickets, but whatever. They see enough to, to decide that they want him around, so they get him to move to London. I think he has to do that to qualify to play to Middlesex, uh, which he does two seasons later. But he still works up at the school during the summer um, doing coaching and and looking after the pitches and so on. So he's in Buckinghamshire when he gets a telegram to say, you're playing for Middlesex today at Lord's. And he goes, oh, shit. And he runs down to the station and he gets on the train and he gets to London and he arrives at Lord's about an hour and a half after the game has started. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But luckily they're batting. So Webb, the captain who's called him in, is opening with your favourite, the inexhaustible A.E. Stoddart. Um, and they've put on a partnership for the first wicket. And so because they're not bowling, they were able to sort of fudge the, the, the team sheet and still include him, whereas if they had been bowling first, they would have left him out. So he's on his uh, county championship debut. What does he do? He takes six for 62 in the first innings, including knocking over Arthur Shrewsbury, Wilfred Flowers, William Scotton, um, some very good players there. Uh, They follow on Nottinghamshire. He gets Scotten out again, Middlesex win. And then a couple of games later, he's playing the Australians. So he's he's played this this one game against the Australians two years earlier, but he plays the Australians again two years later, takes five for 42 in the first innings, takes three more in the second, eight in the match, which ends up being a draw, plays a dozen games in the first season, and then he ramps it up and he's playing pretty much everything by the next season. So... That second season is 1891. That's when he starts taking triple figures of wickets in a season for the first time, and he'll take 100 wickets or more in 14 of the next 15 seasons consecutively. Um, and the one season where he doesn't, he takes 99 wickets. Uh, so he, he works in bulk at the moment, Jack Hearn. Three of his seasons are over 200 wickets, and he fucking loves playing Australia so for for whoever you could play Australia in a lot of different guises so there's an MCC game a couple of years later where he takes four for and six for across the two innings which sets up the MCC to chase 167 and then there's a collapse in the middle order which means poor old Jack has to come out down at 10 and bat for a draw with 14 runs to win. He has to block out the last over to to make sure that they don't actually lose the game that he set up for them. And then uh, the same summer for Middlesex against Australia, he takes seven for 58 and then comes out and top scores with 18. And then Middlesex get annihilated. Australia pile on big runs, even though he gets Alec Bannerman out for a duck. Um, and they don't win that game either. Who didn't? So, well, yes. <laughs> Usually took about two hours, but um, he still got out. 
And then in 1896, when the Australians come back, he plays no fewer than nine matches against the Australians. He plays for the MCC. He plays for the players. He plays for the South. He plays for the Earl de la War 11. He plays for the CI Thornton 11. And he plays three test matches. <laughs> which is, which These tours are just something else, aren't they? These, these sort of late late 19th century tours. Oh. I mean, they really made their money. They earned, Well, that's why they were mm. there, of course. They were there to make as much bank as they could, but, you know, eight days a week and all yeah. the rest, right? So this MCC game, you'll enjoy this. He's playing in an – it's like a final word, All-Stars MCC team. W.G. Grace, Stoddart, Ranjit Singhi, Billy Gunn, Gregor McGregor, the Scottish wicketkeeper who we yep. keep talking about, and Dick Power, the greatest oh, yeah. name in cricket history. They're all in this MCC team. Old mate Jack Hearn rocks up. He clean bowls four of the top five and they bowl out Australia for 18, 18 runs. That is the team total for the Australian touring side. And then, surprisingly, the follow-on is enforced, at which point Jack Hearn takes every wicket to fall in the innings. They're all out for 183. He has bowled 50.3 overs <laughs> and got nine for 73. And he doesn't get a chance for a 10 for because George Giffen gets six, so he can't come out to bat. So <laughs> he's on he's on for all 10, but it doesn't happen. Right, so he's done over. I can't remember how. This has come up. Australia being knocked over for 18 in the, uh, at Lords is a, is a thing that's been... It, for, for whatever reason, it's, it might have been when we went through the lowest first-class scores and we noted that Australia had had a shocker. Um, around that time that there'd been a 12, hadn't there, and an 8 yeah. or something like that. But yeah, anyway. I think the previous tour, Australia bowl out the MCC for 19 and then the next time around, Australia 19. get bowled out for 18. So there's a bit of tit right. for tat there. Anyway, after taking 9 for 73, he unsurprisingly gets picked for the first test at Lords, uh, not required to bowl as Australia get bowled out for 53. Then he makes a few runs and then the second dig five for 76 and sets up the win. Second test, he doesn't take a wicket. Australia, the, well, they have to enforce a follow-on, but the follow-on is enforced. Um, Australia win narrowly by three wickets at Old Trafford. They bat again a second time, but they're only chasing a smallish score, Australia. So he does bowl in both innings, but doesn't take a wicket. And then he plays in this Earl de la War 11, where he takes six for and seven for across the two innings um, for a narrow win chasing. And then sets up the third test win at the Oval, along with Bobby Peel on the watered pitch, the, the one that WG <laughs> has the, the water carts come down and, and soak on the fourth evening so that they could can... Could have just got Bobby down. Could have got Bobby got, down. Don't worry, don't worry about getting the water carts down. Yeah. Bobby in the morning and morning five could have sorted it out and see, could have watered it himself. He could have. He just, just wheel a, a barrel of ale into the dressing room on night four and the rest will take care of itself. Um, but Jack Hearn also does his part. Six for 41 in the first, four for 19 in the second. Australia all out for 44, their third lowest test score to this day. And then he plays for the South and takes six for eight against the Australians in a draw. So all up in matches Loved against it. Australia over this season, he takes 56 wickets at 13, likes playing Australia in England across every available match. And so he tours in 1897-98. The, the Stoddart team takes nine wickets in the test at Sydney as they win that one, and then they go on to lose 3-1, even though he takes six for 98 at Melbourne. He only takes five other wickets in the other five innings of the tour, so he has three really good innings and five poor ones. And then when Australia come back in 1899, he takes England's first test hat-trick against Australia, gets Clem Hill, Sid Gregory, Monty Noble, pretty solid hat-trick as far as quality Handy. of players yeah. goes. 
doesn't dominate really. Otherwise, he plays the first, third and fourth tests in a series of five. England lose the series 1-0, 13 wickets to 24. And that's it for him in test cricket. They go, OK, well, you know, they're, they're, they're moving on from that point. Although he plays for 14 more first-class seasons. Uh, Middlesex win the Champo in 1903. Uh, 1904 is the last year in his 100-wicket streak uh, of 14 out of 15 years. And then he, he sort of, he has a, gradual decline into quite a dip from 1905 for a few seasons and eventually gets dropped from Middlesex in 1910 and gets furious and rebounds with a vengeance, um, gets back in the team the same season, takes over 100 wickets that season, does it again the next season in, in 1911. Um, he's, he's 44 years old by this point in 1911 when he's t- still taking 100 wickets in a season and keeps taking a fair number of wickets through until 1914 when the war intervenes, um, after which he plays two more games, plays for the MCC against Kent in 1921. He takes one wicket and gets out to Titch Freeman because it always has to come back to Titch Freeman. And then he plays for the MCC versus Scotland, Adam, in 1923 at the age of 56. He walks out against the Scots, smacks 20 down the order, then takes four for 46, including three of their top four, and follows it up with two for 18 as the Scots hang on for a draw on the last day. He's the first professional cricketer to be chosen as a Middlesex committee member for the club and spends his time in the 30s coaching uh, royalty in India and coaching probably other royalty at Oxford. He dies in 1944. Jack Hearn with 255 five-wicket innings in first-class cricket. So Mark Wood only has 243 to go. Brilliant. And I'm just going through his opponent list here in first-class cricket. So against Australia, I'm not sure whether Australians folds in Australia in the way that your first-class numbers fold in your test, but let's assume they are aggregated here. Andrew Sampson will tell me if I'm wrong. 152 wickets against Australian sides at first-class level. Yep. That takes some doing. It must be aggregated because he only took 40-something test wickets. 48. So, yeah, 48 test wickets at 22 and then 104 against Australians. I, th- I think it's, it's a possibility they're, they're, um, they're separated, given what you mm. described before, how prolific he was in those I think they would be, yeah. They'd be separated into the first-class Australian teams versus the test yeah. Australian teams. You go through it, though. There are some clubs he had monster seasons or monster uh, records against. Against Kent, 320 wickets at 15. Yorkshire, 319 wickets at, at 17. 252 against Sussex, 220 against Surrey, 213 against Somerset, 287 against uh, against uh, Nottinghamshire, 292 against Lanks, so 215 against Gloucestershire. Massive career. Interesting, only 25 against Warwickshire. Hmm. Um, not sure what was going on there. They mustn't have played too often. But, yeah, some, some of these teams he, he played against, he played against the married. He, so he must have been single at the time, took six wickets against the married, yep. um, played against you know, all, the, all the other sides you'd remember from, from that era. Hambledon, the original and the best. Um, Ireland in one of their – Gents of Philadelphia, 16 wickets at 17 against Bart King and the lads. Yep. So he was a, he was a busy boy. Dublin University, I'm playing at a – I'm playing it. I assume. I know Trinity. Um, I don't know if that's part of the Dublin University. But I'm playing there in April. Okay, that's I think fun. It is. Good stuff. That's, Thank you, that's Jeff. Who, that's a, a nice long answer to get us going. That's who Samuel Beckett played for, I think. Um, Trinity. Yeah, it's the ground where it's it's the wrong way around. So you, you, mm. the the sun sets uh, at one end up the west naturally um, when you're <laughs> batting east yep. west. Yep. So I remember playing a game there a number of years ago, and you, you can't quite see where the ball's coming out of the bowler's hand. Handy. Deep into the day. Uh, well, that's nice. I'm glad we've now learned, now learned 
learned more about Jack Hearn. Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. My next answer is for Sam Chappell, mate of the show, White Line Wireless veteran as well, um, 410. And Sammy was part of the quadruple header that we did before Christmas. I remember doing it uh, when I was in Tasmania, and that was a, a an answer that, among others, included um, Sam Northeast. We'll come up later in the show. I'll have you know, Jeff. Yes. Uh, but we've got a few more steers here from Sam. He said, uh, like Bryce McGain, who was somebody you mentioned, um, so he's gone through the quadruple header quite nicely. Like oh, Bryce yeah, yeah, McGain, yeah, it involved right. Australian spin bowling. Like Sam Northeast, seeking shelter from the tsunami. It happened at Gaul. And like Peter Boren, <laughs> it involves a four-wicket hole. That's very good. That's very, very good. So where we get to here, of course, is Travis Head. Four for 10 at Gaul in 2022. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was worth going back over the test. It was a weird test in a way that we didn't anticipate because Gaul's meant to be slow and huge scores, record-breaking tallies, or it rags like hell and everyone's fucked. Mm. This was the latter. So we had one of both in the series, the, the quick test, the quick kill, <laughs> And then we had the struggle where Australia had to bowl for over two days and Sri Lanka still won that inside four days by an innings. It was a a famous victory. But that first week on morning one, I mean, Sri Lanka getting 212 in context isn't a bad performance when you see what happens after. But yeah, Nathan Lyon, I remember we were on commentary, Jeff, and he had a ball go through the surface. I think it might've been his first delivery through the pitch. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, Alex Carey copped it on the helmet. You're like, well, this could be one of those days. So it made Narush and Dick Wallace 58 it felt quite important, especially when uh, Sri Lanka picked up a few wickets before the close of play on night one. So it was Nathan Lyon's 20th five-wicket haul. And Mitch Swepson, the forgotten man uh, of Australian spin bowling, took three for there. He was on a hat-trick at one point, picked up Dan and Jaya uh, and Chandimar with two stunning deliveries that spun a mile, and that was in his first spell. And after what happened in Pakistan with him not really being able to um, bowl Australia to victory, that, that felt quite significant for him at the time. Then before morning two, there was the chaos of the storm, which is now, Jeff, I believe you've published the tie-line video. Yeah of our day in Gaul. Is that right? So yeah, these out. are the videos that we've made for Thailand. Now, the Thailand's little vias are the, the machines that enable us to broadcast when we're in far-flung places. All you need is an internet connection and you can put in all the other bits and bobs of broadcast equipment. It's nowhere near as like elaborate as it would be if you were in a radio studio or something like that, but it's it's almost impossible to tell as the end listener um, that you're making it off this little box. And Jeff, you uh, made a bunch of videos which told the story of us using the tie line and they're all up there now. Yeah, uh, well, a couple of them are up there. There's a couple more still in the pipeline, but um, the yeah, we had we had a fair bit of footage from the roof when the I don't know what what, what it was it a gale was it a cyclone? It felt. It felt sub- substantial anyway at the time when we were, <laughs> yeah. we were about to go over the edge. Yeah, it did. And I, I have a, a recollection of those uh, those four blokes who were holding down our commentary canopy on top of the uh, canopy. Canopy. On top of the um, – not a canopy. That's a big pancake. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking – these guys are putting their lives at risk to keep our commentary tent up. They really don't need to be doing that, no. you know, given there was no ledge. So cooler heads prevailed. Sri Lankan cricket realised that one of their president's boxes were be, was being unused in, in the Rajapaksa Pavilion, controversially named. So we, um, we, we went back into there and, and the rest is history. But once the game started again, from 98 for three overnight, there was that Steve Smith run out where it was when Kawaja mm-hmm. uh, ran out Smith and Smith went bonkers at, um, at his old mate and it kind of stood out at the time, Smith not having everything 
functioning maybe as it should have been. But they went on to make 321 in just 71 overs. So Green came out there and played to what was that point, his best innings in Test cricket. 77 uh, it was. And, you know, sweeping all the way, we hadn't seen any player sweep shots at that point. Alex Carey, who we, of course, have, made 45 in 47 balls, much the same way. And then Cummins bashed 26, including three sixes in the final over of play, one of which ended up on the fort, I think, or, you know, bouncing into the fort um, to end the day. Uh, And then all hell breaks loose on that third morning. I've forgotten, Jeff, that Australia actually resumed that morning eight wickets down. In my mind, I'm like, oh, well, Australia just bowled out Sri Lanka and it was quick and it was all the rest. But I didn't realise that it actually was Australia still (laughs) resuming their first innings. So they were bowled out for 321 inside a couple of overs. Then Sri Lanka get off to a flyer. They're 103 runs behind on the first innings. But after five and a half overs, they're none for 37, and they're really going for it. And we're thinking, you know, with Frankie Karunaratna, uh, with Patam Nasanka, you know, who knows? If they bat for a couple of hours on a surface like this, Australia might find themselves in a little bit of trouble in the fourth innings, but then... Uh, Frankie was out sweeping line and they were bowled out an hour on from that in just 22.5 overs. So Lyon, four for 31 to make nine for the match. Swepson, a couple more for him. But then Travis Head comes on. To this point, zero wickets in Test cricket. His 28th match and four years after his debut. And that's all quite noteworthy when you consider that for a time in his fledgling one-day career, he was the fifth bowler. You know, he was bowling a lot of overs and taking plenty of wickets with his offspin. But it just never just never happened for him at test level despite getting plenty of opportunities. And it was becoming a bit of a thing. Well, this was the day that all ended. His second delivery through the gate to Chandimar was a, a true thing of beauty. Um, yeah, it was a snake pit, but it turned more than square. Is that even possible? It felt like it turned more than square and bowled Chandimar and ended up going on to um, uh, pick up Dan and Jaya, uh, Van der Say Industries and Emil Denia to end the test match. Four for 10 for Travis Head in 2.5 overs. Nathan Lyon robbed of a 10-wicket match, or at least that's how we, we saw it at the time, how well he bowled for nine all up. And they were bowled out for 113, which meant that Australia actually batted the second time in the same session. That couldn't have happened often in test cricket. So they started the session batting for a couple of overs and they ended the session and the match facing just four balls, 10 to win, and Warner sealed it with a four and a six. Uh, so he was 10 not out at the end. And we we're in the pool by about four o'clock, sadly not with um, Karuna right now. That would have been too perfect. <laughs> it's too late by then. You can't save the match. You, the pool's not going to help you when the game's over. True. So, yeah, I, I kind of weird trip for the next test. Every- Maybe that was yeah, the difference. Yeah, true, because they went on to win. And that was that weird week, wasn't it? So there was already a lengthy gap between the test matches and it became a seven-day break mm. where we weren't moving anywhere. We were all staying in Gaul. There were electricity blackouts constantly due to the wider economic instability of the time. There were the protests taking place, which came to the boil uh, during the second test, and we've spoken about that quite a lot on the podcast. But, yeah, that first test match, let's not forget that there was plenty of quirky stuff there, including... Uh, Travi Head uh, bagging his first test wickets, four for 10 for Sammy Chappell. Very good. Uh, Debashish Biswas with the 14 pounds. Uh, he said it was to do with an Irish cricketer. I went back to the Irish interwar international player, James Ganley, um, and then Sean you Smith, did. who's one of our Ireland correspondents, came through with a bunch of supplementary mm. James Ganley information after that answer as well and passed that on to Deb too, which meant that Deb was sort of left saying, well, I, th- that wasn't my answer, but I kind of wish that it had been my answer. 
Yeah, so just on Sean Smith, by the way, on the way through, I mentioned we're playing at Trinity. Um, so Sean's been <laughs> instrumental in stitching this tour together for the Oval Dream Boys and about five finer word players are going over there for it as well. So uh, I think we've got Dan Price and Pat Hargraves and Paddy McKee on myself, uh, others. Uh, Sheehan, uh, who's organising the trip, who's our, our great mate from Westfield. So, yeah, there, there's a there's a, a nice crossover between the two things and Sean Smith's the glue that's bringing all, all of that together. Deborah, she's, the clue goes that Jim Ganley is a wrong answer, which is what you suspected, Jeff. I am guilty and a little bit sad about this. James Ganley is a fascinating character and Sean Smith supplemented the colour about him. It was a gem to find. To get closer to the person I was thinking of, 14 is a low number and takes one deeper in the past and more dust remembering that the original clue here is that it was a dusty old bastard. The clue was designed to be easy to look up. Okay. Jeff. Well, if we're keeping it simple, uh, the simple thing to do is what is cap number 14 for England. It was Leyland Hone. Uh, for other teams, Australia's cap 14 was Fred Spofforth, Nicholas Tunison for uh, South Africa, Barto Bartlett for the West Indies. I, I wish to know more about mm. Barto Bartlett, purely on the name as well. Bartlett for West Indies. Wazir Muhammad, someone we've talked about for Pakistan. Andy McBride for Ireland. Cap 14. Mr. Yep. Yep. But Leyland Hone was born and died in Dublin, not at the same time, um, lived for quite a long time in between those two events. He had two brothers, three cousins and one nephew who all also played for Ireland. Uh, but Ireland games were probably not against the most serious opposition at the time. So they were not accorded first-class status, even by the stringent requirements for first-class status of this particular era. Ireland games still didn't get first-class status. Retrospectively, it would have been, I suppose. So his first-class career reads as follows. Eight first-class matches, one test, which does stand out. He only played seven other games that were first-class games. And in those games, he made 85 runs at an average of seven um, didn't bowl, took nine catches and affected two stumpings. Was sort of a part-time wicketkeeper, really, but ended up keeping wicket in the one test that he played. Aside from this, I found 11 matches for a team under the name of Ireland that he played in. Most of them are against the... I'm never entirely sure how to pronounce this, but the Isingari Club, like the Wandering oh, yeah, Tourist yeah, yeah. Club, who, who've been... Oh, Isingari are like the most famous touring club of all time. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I will do this. So... Okay, yeah, okay. So, so during the week, a listener of ours, Will Fiennes, his, his father passed away, Nathaniel Fiennes, who was a, a, a lord um, and um, had an extraordinary life. He died at age 104 um, and he was one of the first officers into Belson. Um, so, I mean, you know, to think that what he saw in 1945 and he had a life in cricket. A lot of it was, was Isingari, but also he rattled off 100 in 1939 before the war. Was it for Oxford University or Oxfordshire? One or the other against like a rest of England side. Uh, so he had this like life in cricket, which most of it was in wandering, touring sides, mm -hmm. but um, yeah, went on to have this staggering life. And, and Will, who he was a, a teammate of mine for the authors and a, a listener to the final word and enjoys what we do on story time. But yeah, he, the obituary the Telegraph published about his old man is just like it, it, you you can't believe someone fit that much into their life. I suppose you can achieve more when you live to 104. Um, but, uh, yeah, Isingari was part of his story uh, yeah. and um, as it has been for a lot of people, a, a touring club that uh, I think they play more fixtures around the world than any touring team or something like that, comparable to the MCC at least. Well, historically um, they would yeah, have. I just thought I'd 
they've been, I, I think they were founded in the 1840s at some point, um, the original right, team under yep. that name. So you, you're coming up to 200 years, more than 100 really, or closer to. So yeah, a, a bunch yeah. of these games are against Ireland. Um, a few of the Ireland games are against the MCC and there's one against the Aldershot Division, which was a team based at the Officers Club Services Ground in Hampshire, which you've probably been to because you're a massive nerd. A lot of the services teams played there um, and Hampshire used to play first class class cricket there up until 1964. They played a T20 international between India and New Zealand women's teams in 2011 at the Officers Club Services Ground, um, which I meant to look into more, but I forgot to do that. So I can't remember uh, exactly what context, in which context that was played. Was there a, was there a T20 World Cup in... 2011 in England? Can't imagine there was. Uh, no, there, there, there wasn't. That's, okay. that's a, yeah, that's worth going back and revisiting on. I mean, I suppose they did play at unusual grounds, like club grounds effectively then, didn't they? So Yeah, but it, it was um, a neutral was game is the point. They weren't playing England. Right, New yeah, Zealand, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, there were, an, an army team used to play touring sides there. So the 34 and 38 Australians play an army side um, at the Aldershot Division ground. The West Indies touring teams played their Indian touring teams. My favourite fixture is the Army versus South Americans, um, which, which to be fair, is a contest that continued through most of that continent through most of the 20th century. But Army versus South Americans in 1932 with a very South American-sounding team, including Marshall, Latham, Stewart, Ferguson, Knox, Ayling, <laughs> Keane, Gibson, Grass and Pryor. Um, so his only first-class matches before he plays a test are for the MCC, one against Cambridge and one against Oxford. So, like, this guy's not a serious, serious cricketer, right? Like, he's he's getting picked to play the university games. He plays two of those. Um, he plays uh, across all of his island games. He, he reaches a score in the 70s a couple of times, and that's as good as it gets. Yes, it's a much lower-scoring era, but you know, he, he doesn't make big scores. And somehow he catches the eye of Lord Harris who decides to take him to Australia, Adam, in the year of 1879, which means that Leyland Hone plays the one test match in Melbourne in which he makes six and seven and takes two catches and then goes to Sydney to play in the riot oh. game of wow. 1879. <laughs> Your How new favourite match. I, I, I got to say, the name did ring a bit of a bell yep. when you were rattling through it then. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, have I touched on this before? It must be the scorecard of 1879 at the uh, the association ground. Yes, against New Sydney South Wales. Before it was the SCG. So yeah. he he is he's a part-time keeper um, who's been drafted into keep. He's batting at number 11. He makes four runs and he takes one catch in two innings. He's doing fucking nothing, Leyland Hone. Um, <laughs> and, and this is a team that includes Alexander Webb, who's the Middlesex captain who um, mm, mm. we mentioned earlier, who got, who got yeah. uh, Jack Hearn into first-class cricket. And also to clear up some confusion, I talked at the Adelaide Live show about Charles Absalon um, being the man who played more cricket than anybody else and took eight and a half thousand wickets past the age of 50 and all the rest of it. There's also Charlie Absalom. So there's Absalom with an M and Absalon with an N and they are two different people and Charlie Absalom with an M play, is the one who played test cricket and then got crushed to death by bananas and Absalom with an N is the one who um, plays until the age of 80 and takes 100 wickets in his last season. So the riot game is Leyland Hone's second match against New South Wales. He then plays two against Victoria. So that makes five first-class games on the tour with the one 
test match and he plays non-first-class games against a 15 of Victoria, an 18-player team from South Australia, some Tasmanian sides. He plays Bendigo, he plays Ballarat. But basically, he plays those. he's played two MCC games and he plays five on this Australian trip, and then that's it because he goes back to England and plays one more first-class match at Lords the following year again against Oxford, another nonsense game. And that's it. That's his whole first-class cricketing career. Um, but there is one more point to drop in here. On the way home, May 1979, they leave in March, I think. Um, on the way back, they go via the east coast of the USA and he plays one miscellaneous match against the United States of America national team, still with Lord Harris and their lot. Right. And they go to the club ground of the St George's Cricket Club, who the, the club I was talking about with Barrett in Adelaide, in the Adelaide live show, about the the match, the first international match in 1844, um, that club, which used to have club grounds in Manhattan, they've moved by this point to Jersey. So they're in Hoboken, as in made famous by the Hoboken crunch of Ben and Jerry's. Um, ice cream, very interesting subject. Anyway, uh, Leyland Hone in this particular game against the USA gets promoted to number six. He makes 10 runs. He doesn't keep wicket. Webb keeps wicket. Doesn't do anything in the field. Does fuck all once again. Leyland Hone, one of the greatest cricketing passengers ever to go around the field. Cap number 14 for England. And he did a little bit for Ireland um, here and there when he was playing against nonsense teams as well. There you go. Maybe appropriate that he was going around in a Leyland, that he was a passenger. Um, he, he, like what I'm doing there. Very good. And, um, and, uh, yeah, no, yeah, shakedown 1979, not 1879. You, you went with 1979 there Did at I? the end. Just a, okay, just no. a Smashing Pumpkins super fan. Wasn't a Smashing Pumpkins yeah. fan, cool Leyland. Never had yeah. the time. Right. Okay. Nice one. I, 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 um, I've been enjoying the music Brownlow, um, re, um, mm. reappointment of songs over the, the last couple of weeks, by the way, for those who aren't involved in that on Twitter. They had all of the songs that didn't make the hottest 100 the first time around as their kind of, last poll a couple of days ago and uh, that did include um, Disarmed by Smashing Pumpkins, which I couldn't believe that didn't make the hottest 100, did you? Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, okay, uh, we've been going a pretty long time for a show that's meant to be doing a stack of revisits. We'll see how we go with this. Uh, next up is me. I've got 205 Tim Henry. I originally talked about Jack Chaka Wilson. Uh, he was a DAB uh, back in India in 1956. He probably didn't chuck it, by the way, just his nickname was was Chucker. Uh, mm. But that was not correct. It was somebody else. Uh, Jeff, Tim sent us a clue, another one. Well, Paul Wilson probably didn't block it either, but his name was Blocker. Tim has sent through this clue. He says, for a great man who is sadly unwell now, but in the 80s was a lion-hearted player in a dark time. Uh, I don't expect this to be too challenging, to be honest, but I want to hear the final word take on a great player of my childhood. Well, I don't I don't need to do any research to know who this is about. Yeah, yeah, that, that's right. The era, the description's got to be Alan Border, the great AB. And, yeah, the way I thought I'd get into this for you, uh, Tim, to help tell the story of AB was through centuries. So, and, and just to explain how, he, how his presence was felt through the posting of three figures, made... made 27 test centuries, 14 different venues and made 14 of them away from home. So he didn't like, I don't know, cash in on Boxing Day each year. And by the way, you know, good on uh, Matthew Hayden and Ricky Ponting for devouring sides on Boxing Day, but that wasn't really the AB story. He, he spread it out and he did it at interesting times. I doubt anyone has made as many test hundreds as that has made more of them away from home than Border or uh, a higher percentage than, you know, 
than, than, than just over 50%, clearly making 14 of, of 27. His first century was in uh, 1979, to come back to that year again, uh, from the previous answer, at the MCG, one of Pakistan's only test wins in Australia, one of the four, um, the Safraz match. The Safraz match. Then he gets one uh, in Chennai the year after. You know, we know how hard it is for Australians to make hundreds in India. Well, Border got one of them on his first tour. That was in 79 as well, sorry. Then in Perth, 79, third of the year, against a side that was smashing them, the England um, tourists uh, who were there as part of the official sides and Border um, wasn't part of World Series cricket. So England win that series 5-1 and um, Border uh, makes a century there at Perth. It would have been a, a quick track back then. Then he makes twin centuries against Pakistan in 1980 at Lahore, where they would have been playing the 11 Pakistani players and the two home, two home umpires. And I'm not saying that was exclusive to Pakistan. Clearly, home umpiring was a problem across the global game, including in Australia. But um, it was it, that, that's not to um, diminish how challenging it was for players to make runs in Pakistan in that, in that era. Mm-hmm. Two Ashes centuries for Border in the cauldron of 1981, in the thick of all that chaos, um, Border stood up twice as Australia were, were folding to both them and co. Uh, gets a century at Port of Spain against the fearsome West Indies in 1984, uh, which is when I think most people think of 84 as when the Windies were at their very best and Border made a century against them then. Um, and that confirmed, I think, if, if nothing else, that he was absolutely going to be the next, next test captain. And that came along a bit earlier than, than most thought because Kim Hughes pulls out as captain in the summer of 84, 85. So Border leading the Australian side to England in 85, another losing effort in a tough time where Australia had, uh, were, you know, were in, were in the throes of losing players to South Africa who they then couldn't select on that tour, not to make excuses. It's just the way it played out in that really tricky period uh, where Border was inheriting the job, uh, he made 196 at Lords, which became his newest highest new highest score to that point in Test cricket. So on the honours board there, he made twin tons at Christchurch in 1986 when New Zealand were Australia's bogey side. Uh, then it's worth noting, but Border stood up there as he did against England in 86, 87. Another losing effort for Australia, which he was overseeing, but two Ashes hundreds at home. So when, as you can hear, Jeff, there's a theme, isn't there? When, when it's tough or when it's toughest, uh, there's Border who's standing up individually, if nothing else. And a year on from that, this is to the 205 in question. And I just want to dig into this series a little bit here. The 205 is against New Zealand at Adelaide Oval. That is Border's best ground, by the way. He makes four of his 2700s at Adelaide. But in December 87, remembering that Border took over the captaincy in late 84, or was it early 85? Either way, a fair way before that. They'd not won a series under Border. It was such rugged times. And this was the second test of the series, and it was significant, remembering that in the first test match, the previous week at Brisbane, where Hadley had routed them 12 months earlier. They sort of overcame those demons at the Gabba. They won. Boone made a century. They saw off Hadley, and it was the work of McDermott and Merv Hughes and Bruce Reed working as a trio, as they would do for a few years when they were all fit, uh, rare as it was with McDermott having a lot of injuries and Reed, of course, having loads of injuries. But when they worked together, that attack from about here, 87 through to roughly 92, were, were quite important together. Um, and at Adelaide, you know, New Zealand did well to respond after being beaten at Brisbane. They make 485 for nine declared, 150 for Andrew Jones, 137 for Martin Crow. They kept those Australian mm. bowlers uh, at bay. Uh, and, you know, this is where the scoreboard pressure might kick in for a side that wasn't used to winning. 
you know, the, they've won the previous week, but New Zealand have racked up nearly 500. But no, uh, Alan Border ate scoreboard pressure for breakfast, as it were. He walks in when it's two for 29. Hadley's got Boone early. He's got Dino for a two-ball duck, both in the same over, both with a score on 29. In walks Border, and they're a massive chance. You'd say from that point, New Zealand are, you know, if you're a win visiting, 80% chance of winning the test or something like that. Instead, AB occupies the crease for 599 minutes and 485 deliveries for his 205, his first test double. Gave them absolutely nothing. Had support from Steve Warren, made 61. Sound Asleep made 62. Greg Dyer made 60. So kind of unheralded types remembering mm. that this is in the in the pre Productive Steve War period, still nearly two years away from his first Test hundred, but three sixties there from players very much of their time, and he gets Australia a first innings lead. They get to four hundred and ninety six. Hadley's figures five for sixty eight from forty two, so they clearly identified him as the threat and mitigated it as well as they could. Uh, and New Zealand eventually batted out the draw. They were one eighty two for seven on the final day, but it meant that Australia went to Melbourne one nil up in the series. They still hadn't won it but they couldn't lose it and they were a chance of winning the series and it goes on to become a bit of an all-timer with Mike Whitney at the end facing off or facing out um, Danny Morrison and and Richard Hadley. I, I interviewed Whit on SEN during the, where were we, the Sydney Test match. He was uh, admitted or elevated to the Cricket New South Wales Hall of Fame and he was in great form, as you can expect. Uh, Mike Whitney, one of the great storytellers in cricket, but he went back and told that story of facing Danny Morrison and Richard Hadley at the very end and, and having been a traditional number 11, just how challenging that all was. But because he got through to the end and those big fist pumps at the end, it meant that Alan Border finally had a series win under his leadership. And a lot of that was due to the draw they picked up the previous week at Adelaide. So they're the that's his 22nd test term. His 23rd comes in Pakistan in 1988. Then there's the four-year drought when... Times are better. Faisal are bad. Exactly, exactly. And this is where times are better, right? So between 19, let's call it 88 and 92, when he makes 100 in Sri Lanka, uh, 110, I think it was, that four-year period is when the Australian team are actually good again. They're winning most series. I mean, I don't know that win in 88, 89, but they win in 89 against England. They have some success at home against Pakistan in 89, 90. 1990, 91, they beat England in a home Ashes series. And then 91, 92, they defeat India in a home test series. So this whole stretch of time where Border isn't as productive, I guess my point is that they don't need him to be as productive because he's he's developed a strong enough team that they can play around him a little bit more. He's making plenty of 50s, but not having those match-winning hundreds that were more a feature when the Aussie side was stuffed in the mid to late 80s. Does get 200s in 92, the one against Sri Lanka away from home, and 110 against the Windies at Melbourne, which was, again, quite significant because that was a series where they were up against it. They needed to win at Melbourne, and they did. Didn't win the series, but but did win at Melbourne. Then he gets another double, a 200 not out even at Leeds in 1993, his final Ashes series, having played Ashes cricket as far back as 1978. His final century was against New Zealand in 1993 when Australia were ready to, to move on from him and, and move on to the next generation. But I love Alan Border's final day in Test cricket. And again, it sticks with the theme. They're at Durban. It's one all. It's the final day of the final test and only one team can win, South Africa. They're miles ahead in the test match. So what does Border do? He bats for 283 minutes, almost the whole final day, for 42 Mm -hmm. not out. There was no way, there was no way on AB's final day in test cricket, 
he was going to give away a series. Yeah, it was one all. They didn't win it, but he wasn't going to let the other bastards win. That was his attitude at all times, even at age 39. It was a symbol of his mammoth career, 156 test matches, 11,174 runs at 51, 27 centuries, 63 other schools over 50. It's easy now for uh, when doing fictional 11s to have all these other players overtaking AB and, you know, it, it's it's fashionable and recency bias and, and so on. But any best 11 ever of Australian cricket has Alan Border in there and maybe not captain, but, uh, you know, you, you would imagine Bradman would have that designation, but but certainly as the number two, as the vice captain uh, and, and the way he made his hundreds and when he made mm. them and when he made his runs, he's a symbol of all of that. Well, I, th- I think from the reporting of how players under Bradman enjoyed that experience versus the ones under Border who were, yeah, well, it wasn't, it wasn't always a fun time, but the in- the loyalty that he commands among everybody who played under him is 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 immense. So, you know, I I, yep. I would argue that he should be captaining that team. And, yep. and I think there's a useful measure, and we know about averages being a blunt instrument and so on, but the, the averaging over 50 for an Australian player kind of situation with the 20 innings cutoff, you've got, what, uh, Jack Ryder way back when, You've mm-hmm. got Bradman, then you've got nobody until Greg Chappell, who is who is acknowledged at the time of, as being so far above all of his peers in Australian cricket and being kind of the best of the best, the best since Bradman tag and all of that. Then you've got Border. Then it's kind of it's it's a captain's run, right? It's Greg Chappell to Border to Steve War. You know, Taylor doesn't. Steve War does. Ponting does. And then it gets that little bit easier, you know, the quality of cricket, the difficulty of cricket eases and um, to some degree and, and Hayden averages 50 and Hussey averages 50 and then you've got the modern era with Voges, Labuschagne, Smith and I think that's the lot. So that's, I think it's 11 all up, 11 Australians who've averaged over 50 in test cricket ever and Border clearly does it in the most difficult era. He clearly has the hardest task to accomplish that with a weak side for a long period of time that he's leading and, and to be able to do that in the era that he played in, you know, I think he's, he's more creditable than anybody else's 50 average. It's an extraordinary thing to be able to do that over a career that long against such tough opposition and so many West Indies tours and series and all the rest of it. So, yeah, for me, he's top of the tree, obviously in run scoring aside from Bradman the Freak, who is exempt from all such conversations, but in terms of um, of what he did for Australian cricket or as a cricketer in general, that's it. He's number one. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, you're next up. Now, this is one that we've uh, really gone around the houses on, 450 USD, so 4.50 USD for Aravind. Now, um, this was via the cult hero clue originally. We've had two swings at this. He's actually already appeared in a um, in a revisit special. So this goes back a long, <laughs> long way. Uh, so Aravind uh, adds to this that Dinesh Mongia, who you spoke about, it's not him but it's the same kind of cricketer. He tonked a few sixes facing the fastest bowler, broke his bat, broke the stumps to win a series, was cheered by opposition fans and their president. A stress fracture fracture. kept him away for a few years, but he returned to have a lengthy IPL career as a player and a coach. Has a hat trick and a championship under his belt. A Ranji veteran and an overall unforgettable 
cricketer. Jeff, have we got it this time? Finally, at last, yes. Um, I went through Dinesh Mongu, I went through some other players, we, but we're ending up all the way back at Lakshmipati Balaji, who, if you don't remember him, um, did play all formats for India. Um, interesting sort of player, but didn't play a lot of all formats. 30 ODIs, eight test matches, and then made a late career comeback years later to play five T20 internationals for India. But in this particular period of time, is is in winning teams in 2004 in the Test Series in Pakistan and the One Day Series in Pakistan, uh, the era when India used to go there to play. Could swing the ball a bit if it used to swing. Um, he was fast enough, he was lean, and he had that kind of matinee idol hair, Balaji, that would like flourish and bounce around everywhere, wear a bit sort of ashish narrow kind of hair. So he looked, you know, he looked fun streaming into the crease and uh, streaming up to the crease. People liked watching him bowl. So in 2004 in the tests, they win in Multan, lose in Lahore, win in Roll Pindi, and it's the last test where he has a say. He takes four for 63 in the first innings, keeps Pakistan's score down, and then India rack up a huge score and, and bowl them out. He takes three more wickets as they bowl them out to complete the win and win the series. But the ODI series is where this particular memory is being drawn from for Aravind, in which he does make 45 runs in the series across the five games, <laughs> Lakshmapati Balaji, but he does it in style. It's quite a wild series looking back over it. Pakistan very nearly chased 350 in the first game. Like they fall five or six runs short. He bowls tidily, doesn't have to bat in that game. And then India very nearly chased 330 in the second game. And Balaji's batting at 10. It's 284 for eight when he comes out to bat. He puts on 30 with Ramesh Power. He's got 14 from 10, Balaji, at this point. So they need 16 off the last two overs, and he's still there, and suddenly they look like a chance to do it. He gets run out. Um, at that point, they end up losing Naira. Ashish Naira is actually playing in this game. Funny that he came to mind earlier with the hair. Um, he makes a golden duck. They lose by a few runs. But that's when the Pakistani president invites the Indian team to come and visit him. So Pervez Musharraf, who you might remember, I think I was linking him to Pervez Akhtar for some reason, who made the triple hundred against Derish Malkan, but that's another story. Uh, Pervez Musharraf particularly enjoyed Balaji's batting and made a point of telling him that while you were at the crease, I was worried that we were going to win that, to, to lose that game. Um, and then all of his Indian teammates give him shit about that for the next few days about how the Pakistani president thinks that he's the best batter in the team anyway the third game Pakistan do pull off a run chase it's only 245 but it only gets to 244 because Balaji makes 21 off 12 and I reckon this is mostly what Aravind is remembering so he's facing Shoal Bakhtar he throws the bat there's a ball that is spearing in at the top of middle stump and it's going to bowl him all ends up and he gets a little outside edge on it and edges it for four. Then he plays a lovely on drive to a Yorker and then he just plays the most ridiculous, like gorgeous sort of check drive for six off Sammy. He just, just sort of effortlessly pushes at the ball and it sails over long on. It's an extraordinary shot. I've watched it about 15 times today. It's, it's well worth watching again. And India still lose that game. So he takes none for 41 in, in the chase. So they, you know, the Pakistanis sit on him, but he doesn't take any wickets. Then he's not required to bat in the fourth game, although he does take a couple of wickets, gets Inzamam out and Moen Khan, the keeper who was a very good batter at that point. But India chased 294-5 down, so he's not required to bat. And then the fifth game, India make 293, Laxman makes 100. They defend it easily. Balaji takes three for 62. So... 
it's interesting, right? He's, his bowling is pretty expensive across the series. He takes a few useful wickets. His batting is fun, but none of the games in which he scores runs do they win. And yet he's the player that Aravind remembers for scoring 45 runs in this series for probably playing three or four cool, interesting shots. Um, and that's what sticks in your mind. So I kind of like that about cricket. It doesn't always matter what the result was or whether somebody actually played a part in something else happening. It's just what happened at the time. It's it's a bit Shamar Joseph from Adelaide. Everyone was talking about him, even though they got absolutely annihilated in you know, before lunch on day three. It was all about the good vibes from Shamar. So anyway, that's Lakshmi Pati Balaji at last for Aravind, and we're not doing that one again. <laughs> Thank you, Aravind. Yes, it, it reminds me, as you say, as you finish there, uh, a conversation that uh, Sam and Pez, uh, Sam and Pez, Sam and Higos had on the um, great cricketer last week about Sean Marsh and his retirement from all things cricket. It was very much about how does he make you feel? How does a player make you feel? And I think that's probably where Aravind was steering here. Next up for us is uh, what's for me? It's Dobbo. Dobbo's back. Chris Dobbins, one seventy. Once again, uh, the last Dobbo's time around back. for Dobbo, I friend. did. I did. Uh, Johnny back. won't Dobbo's hit back. today, <laughs> and we've done Johnny won't hit today in various ways. But I did uh, his Olympic gold medal, his uh, defeat of Snowy Baker in that bout, and then his awful death alongside his father. So it was a bit morbid, but I wanted to broaden out on JWHT, the great. Uh, England Ashes winning captain, but I was not correct on this occasion. Uh, and Chris has sent us a clue for our next uh, frolic, Jeff. Okay, Dobbo, what have you got? Now onto my pledge of one seventy. It relates to the first dismissal of its kind. That's it. I've got a pretty long preamble to this, Jeff. I apologise in advance, but it's totally, totally worth it. So, not first of its kind. So, uh, when when Brenda McCullum ran out morally, when morally, uh, when uh, when now it was um, was was Sankakara on one ninety nine or ninety nine when morally went walkabout and had his bails taken when he thought he the ball was dead. Sankakara had just had just raised the hundred and morally goes to shake his hand. That's right, and therefore it became ninety nine. Was it or it was something that was no no they they taken the run they'd completed the, oh, the I run see. and then morally goes back leaves his crease to go back to to talk to right. Him. So they were all out 170 on that occasion and the number's 170. So I did think that could be it for about five seconds, but no, that's not the first time that's happened. So we'll move on. Another little segue here, though, is an absolute belter. A bloke by the name of Russell Endine, right? So mm-hmm. Russell South Endine was, the, was indeed the first player out handled the ball in Test cricket, South African wicketkeeper. This was Cape Town 1956-57. They're playing England and he kicked away a delivery from Jim Laker and the ball went back towards the stumps and he swatted it away. So similar to how we remember Steve Waugh getting out, handled the ball in 2001, which was the sixth instance. Similar to how Graham Gooch was out that way in 1993, which I remember watching live on television uh, at Old Trafford when there were half a chance of saving that game, England. And on 133, Merv Hughes bowled the ball back of a length um, and Gooch defended it into the turf and, again, it was ballooning up and it was heading back towards the stumps and he, and he whacked it away and was given out straight away by Dickie Bird. Uh, they barely even appealed and Bird's like, that is out in that um, that sort of authoritative way that, that Bird gave players out when he was uh, sure it was uh, to be the case. Michael Vaughan was the seventh player out 
handle the ball. Uh, and by far the weirdest, by far yeah. the weirdest. I'm not sure if you've seen this, Jeff. I hadn't. I'm surprised I wasn't yeah. familiar with this. Where playing against England, India shot. at Bangalore in yeah. 2001. Yeah, so a sweep shot. Uh, Sarandeep Singh's bowling. Again, it flies up in the air having missed the sweep off his pad. But it's nowhere near his stumps. The ball is landing well in front of Vaughan. So if you acknowledge that he's sweeping, he's way out in front of the woodwork. But Vaughan, for whatever reason, kind of uh, brings the ball down to the turf with his glove and kills it dead, as if he's going to throw the ball to the man at short leg or whatever. Not unreasonably, they appeal, and he's and he's given out on the field handled ball as well. So he could make the case that he was catching it to throw it to short leg or whatever, but the umpires were having none of that. And Vaughan has acknowledged. Not your job yeah, to do the fielding when you're betting. Yeah, Vaughan acknowledged after the fact that it was a dumb thing for him to have done and he was right to have been given out. This is in the pre uh, – this is before Vaughan's turning point too, right? This is before the summer of 2002 in England where he starts making bulk runs. So that could have been – that could have had a big effect on his career, but as we know, didn't. So it's a pretty bloody good club. <laughs> you know, uh, Steve Waugh, Graham Gooch, Michael Vaughan, uh, and also Desmond Haynes, uh, Moshin Khan are in there too. So uh, Digger Hilditch, he's um, uh, a bit of an odd one out there from uh, from that um, test against England. The sufferers, Noah's, yeah. Yeah, a- a- against no, England. It's, 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 it's the Pakistan one. Oh, sorry. I, th- I thought it was um, against England in 79 at Perth. I, I-, I didn't um, I didn't look as closely as you must know this, the Hilditch one. I, I haven't uh, looked at it before. Yeah, we, we did it about maybe six months ago. We talked about that game. It, it's, it's retaliation for the um, – for for the run out at the non-strikers end, isn't oh, it? Oh, yes. Innings. Now I remember. Now I remember. Okay. Nice one. Nice one. Well, anyway, it's a pretty good list that Russell Endine started back in um, back on New Year's Day at Cape Town in, in 1957. But how about this? Go back with me to 1951, August the 16th, 1951 to be precise, and the first obstructing the field dismissal. Now, sadly... RIP handled the ball because handled the ball, as we know, no longer exists. There's mm-hmm. only obstructing the field. Uh, we saw that with Mushfika Rahim just a couple of months ago, December 2023, when he handled the ball but was given out obstructing the field. Mm. There's only been two. There's only been two. One in 1951, August 16, and one in December 2023. So it's a pretty small list of players who've been out either obstructing the field or handled the ball, a list of nine. For this one, we're at the Oval. Uh, and again, it's South Africa playing England. And Len Hutton, again, pretty bloody handy names on this list. Len Hutton is facing Athel Rowan. The ball mm-hmm. hits the handle of his bat and goes up. And the South African underneath it, as the ball comes back towards the stumps and potentially into his hands for a catch, is Russell Endine. He's the wicketkeeper there as well. Huh. So he's the first player out handle the ball. In six years later, but in 1951, he is front and centre of the first of two obstructing the field dismissals. So of the nine ever, a bloke who played 26 test matches for South Africa is right in the thick of two of them and they're the two first instances of that, which I thought was quite something. has nothing to do with Dobbo's 170, but I thought you'd appreciate this, Jeff. I do appreciate it. So... Okay, so yeah, it's, it's that it's this this twinning of history kind of thing, right? Where yeah, yeah, somebody's linked at one end and somebody's linked at the other, and then and and then there's the one that I was talking about on the weekly show. We did a nerd pledge on there with with Barrett about USA and Canada and whatnot. That's when we were talking about that there about the player called 
Halliwell from Canada who, like, rugby tackled the bowler to stop him catching the ball and then, and then was surprised that the US team were unhappy about that. So mm. I, I, don't know, I, I don't know if that's where obstructing the field first started coming into the laws, but it didn't exist before then because he wasn't given out. Well, what I'll say is this, bring back handled the ball. Bring back handle the ball. I'm going to um, speak to Fraser next time I'm in his company and ask him whether this can be something. Yeah, there's been an obstruction and that's quirky, the second ever after Endine, but I want to – not after Endine, after Len Hutton, but Endine's involvement as the wicketkeeper, okay. but I want something more. So what's the actual answer to your question? Yes, Dobbo's 170. Uh, he, he tells me he was fishing around for events around the, the time of his birth, which was December 1970. This was the month of the rained off Melbourne Ashes Test match. Scheduled, scheduled to start not on First Boxing ADI. Day, but on the 30, on, yeah, 31st of the 12th. Uh, and they had three days washed out. So they called the whole thing off. Quite interesting. So they had three days of the tests were rained out. They're like, we're not going to. We're not going to bother starting on day four or five. We're just going to pull the pin. Instead, on day five, they played what became the first one-day international and they simply shuffled it all back, scheduled a further test match. Thus, why it, it's seen as a seven-test Ashes series. It's only six because the Melbourne one across December and early January never happened. But, yeah, the 5th of January... 1971, the first one-day international. A little factoid from that day, which I like. I'm pretty sure this is the Tim Lane fact. Don't know why I remember this. I reckon I heard Tim Lane talking about this on commentary in about 1994, but, you know, these things that stick with you for life. Peter Hudson was there in the crowd, and, um, of course, we, we know what Peter Hudson went on to do uh, across Victoria and specifically at the MCG in that year of 1971, just about the best grand final ever. Four goals in the first half before he was taken out and brought up his 150th. Uh, and, yeah, but earlier, on the fifth day of 1971, uh, he was there watching the cricket. Um, the other quiz question from that game that got raised with me on SEN recently, who was the uh, who bowled the first ball of the first one-day international? And I just knew it. I'm like, oh, Froggy Thompson, wasn't it? And I'm like, I don't know why I know that. I don't want to know that, but I do know it. <laughs> and it was Froggy Thompson. But, yeah, we've, um, we've circled long enough to put you out of your misery, Jeff. Why 170? Well, when he was on 17, Basil de Oliveira was run out by Ian Chappell, and Rod Marsh, he was on 17 at the time, first of a kind, the first run out in one day international cricket. So that was the 17 for Dolly. 170 is the clue. A couple of final word faves there in the first one day ever played. That'll do nicely. Thank you, Dobbo, for the latitude as ever. There we go. And that makes three consecutive mentions for Basil de Oliveira because he was on the last story time from Adelaide. He was on the midweek show. <laughs> um, and now he's on story time this weekend too. So he's doing well this week. All right, I've got one more. This might need to be the last one for this particular attempt. We might need to do a part two of the revisits. We'll see. Strickland tends to be the way. We we come with Brady. If we want to do if we want to do a full revisit special, it'll be a three hour episode, and I don't think yes. anyone's um, anyone's really up for that. I mean, we're not, not quite, even us. Not quite at the Dan Carlin stage no, of cricket no. podcasting yet. I, I don't think that's the way it's going to work. Right, Strickland Thagram, the one. Dollar USD. It was actually a two dollar pledge, but Srikant said my number is one hundred, even though my pledge is two hundred. Uh, with all the shows you're making, I'll make it easy for you. It's a match aggregate for a dusty old bastard. Well, this one, now that we come back to it, is one that we've talked about before. This is Kota Ramaswamy, who played the second and third 
tests on the 1936 tour of England, which again, looping back, is what Barrett was talking about in Adelaide last week. Everything has been linking between these shows. So he talked about the second test in that series where Gubby Allen took seven for 80 um, and Mohammed Nissar took five for 120 for India, the early speedster. In the first match of this series in Manchester, Ramaswamy, a bit like Vivius Lakshman, who's come up a few times today, bats well at six and then gets elevated to number three in the second innings. He makes 40 in the first innings. He makes 60 in the second innings, which equals 100, which is the number that Srikanth is pointing us towards. But more importantly, the 60 helps save the game against Headley Verity. And in the second match, he makes 29 and 41 not out. They, they lose following on, but he's batted well. And, and that's it. Those are the only test matches that he played. But this is a story that we told in some depth in Storytime 139 is the episode. So if you want to go and find that story, it's there. People may remember the end of that story where at, at, at 90 years of age, Kota Ramaswamy wandered off from home. And uh, the assumption is that he went to end a life that he felt had become a burden to himself and to others. He was unwell and wanted it to be over is the assumption because he he was never seen again. Um, But Storytime 139 was published last June, so if you want to roll back in the feed and find the full story there, it's interesting. People sometimes ask us, like, is there a point where you're going to run out of stories to tell? And we we say, well, not really. There There are so many to do. But some of the things, you look at that 1936 game and look through the 11s um, and I'm like, well, who have we talked about in depth, in detail on this show? And we, thus far we've done Mohammed Nisar, Baka Jalani, uh, the, the Maharaja of Visianagram, uh, Jahangir Khan, who's not the squash player but the cricketer of the same name, Syed Wazir Ali and Syed Mushtaq Ali we've talked about, Vijay Merchant and CK Naidu we've talked about a lot and Ramaswamy. So we've done nine of the Indian 11 from 1936 in detail. (laughs) And for England, we've done Arthur Fagg, plenty on Wally Hammond, Morris Leyland, Gubby Allen as of last weekend, Hedley Verity plenty of times and Jim Sims as seen in Muriel's Wedding. So six of the England 11 and nine of the, the Indian 11 that we've covered in considerable depth on this show. That's nice. That that and that's and yeah, as you say, a nice place to leave it as well. I think we've got plenty more revisits coming. Uh, at a minimum, uh, we've got next week or next time we record Peter Roberts. We've got Max W. We've got Guy Hornsby, who's been in touch with me about his answer. We've got Xavier Beauchart or Beauchart. Did we did we agree on the pronunciation? We've there? we've, we've sure. always every time he's come up, we've always said that we're not we're not sure, and we do like six different versions. And he never, he may, I think he did tell me once a couple of years ago, but um, he, I think he just enjoys us not knowing now. Glenn Finkel, the beauty from him, uh, Raphael Sumza, who I'm probably pronouncing his name incorrectly, Schumer, that'll do as well. Don't know how I got that, uh, and yes, other. Other revisits that we we didn't know necessarily existed. So the admin task will continue on that front, but all the other answers are written. So I'm not quite sure when Jeff will record that release revisit special part two, but it'll happen soon enough in amongst the Maybe next week. Weekly Maybe we'll do it next yeah. week. We'll figure yeah, it out. Yeah, I think we will. Yeah, and it might be that we do a couple um, a couple of um, episodes in quick succession while I'm back in London for another three and a half weeks. And, Jeff, you're not at Brisbane this week, so there might be a window there. All right, that's it for us for now, Storytime 167, the Vivius Luxman um, tribute edition, as it ended up being. He did come up quite a, quite a number of times. That wasn't planned, but that's just how it worked out. It was very, very special spending the last 
hour and a half with you, Adam. Uh, if you want to support the show, you want to play Nerd Pledge, go to patreon.com slash the final word. That's how you get involved with all the good fun things going on in our world. And uh, aside from that, well, we'll see you on the daily shows. Have a nice weekend. So you know what I meant. Yeah. I had to go.